Hi, welcome to the Most Foul Podcast. I'm Andrew McDaniel. And I'm Kirsten Hammond. So I'm super excited to finally be recording this. Um, How are you feeling, Kirsten? Oh my gosh, I have been so excited for weeks now to actually be recording. And yeah, getting started is amazing. So I know we're both podcast listeners and fans. It's exciting and daunting to be a podcast host. It's different. It's definitely different. But I think that there's so much interesting stuff out there for us to talk about. And I'm really excited. Listeners, we're so excited to have you be a part of this. With this episode in particular, we've done a lot of research and it's fascinating. We also are kind of noobs at this, so we want to be upfront. At least I do. Andrew, you have some experience you can talk about if you want to, but I'm totally new to this world and so I'm nervous and I might talk fast and I might lose my train of thought. So yeah, I'm just putting that out there. Oh yes, my 3 a.m. college radio show days are, I feel it in my blood. (laughs) (laughs) So it was your idea originally to do a podcast many years ago, actually. Yeah, I, I've wanted to do one for so long, and probably like a lot of people, it's just like, oh, what a fun idea, and then nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but then I found my uh, thought partner and collaborator and turned it into Most Foul. Yes, it's amazing. And, you know, when you came to me with the idea several years ago... I had listened to podcasts a long time ago, mostly like meditation podcasts and things like that. And so I started listening to some suggestions that you had, but I just, I had trouble envisioning it. I was just in a place in my life where, I don't know, it it wasn't fitting into the plan. But recently I've been hooked on it. I don't know if it's pandemic or what, but I've gotten really hooked on a few that I love that we can't wait to actually share with you too about what we're listening to as well. And then I started mulling over the idea from years and years ago. And then I love that as soon as I brought it to you, you were like, bam, it's happening. Well, and in fairness, I think years ago it was like, would anyone listening listen to a marketing podcast? <laughs> <laughs> so we should tell the listeners that we are both Marcom professionals, and that's how we met. We met uh, through work five long years ago now. Five beautiful years ago. (laughs) Yeah, we started at the same place one week apart. And then it was like, oh, we're the same person. Let's be friends forever. Definitely. Definitely. So do you want to you want to tell them or should I personality tests, everything, strengths? Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe it does start with Strengths Finders (laughs) 2.0. I don't know. Do listeners really know about that? I don't have a sense of how commonly, how commonly known that is. But our boss at the time was very into Strengths Finder, which is kind of a personality test, but also kind of a tool that you can use in offices to figure out kind of, you know, what you're great at and to play in play into that. So play to your strengths rather than trying to overcome your limitations or the things you're not so good at. And I was a naysayer. <laughs> who eventually drank the Kool-Aid. And I was like, this Strengths Finders test is so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we both drank the Kool-Aid. We went to a conference together about it, remember? Oh, yeah. And in lack of preparation, I couldn't even tell you my top five right now. 
other than I think we shared three or four of the same top five. Yes. We, number we shared, one was strategic. Yes. We shared three, but our both of our number one was strategic. What else? I don't know. We're gonna okay, we have to brush up on Strengths Finder between episode one and episode two. But then that led me down the path. I mean, my Myers Briggs and my horoscope, my natal chart with my birth time and location. <laughs> And I sort of don't believe it at all, but also sort of believe it 100%. <laughs> I mean, the proof is in the pudding, though, right? Like, our, our things align very closely. I forget what you... Oh, your, your Myers-Briggs is one letter off from me. You're a T and I'm an F, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're the same except that. Oh, no, you're a P, too, aren't you? INTP. Oh, yeah, INTP, the logician. I'm an, I'm an INFJ, the advocate. So as we went down into that rabbit hole, it's like, okay, well, we have these things in common and the results of these tests really show that, yes, we have these things in common and we should have these things in common based on A, B, C, D. And how can we do something together towards world domination? (laughs) Yeah, it was like, we could either use our powers for evil or we could use them to start a podcast. (laughs) And you're Slytherin, so you were kind of like, let's do something evil. And I'm, I don't know, Hufflepuff maybe? Ravenclaw? I'm not Slytherin, so I was like, let's do a podcast. I'm proudly (laughs) Slytherin. Uh, I don't know about evil. I think it's just about, um, sometimes the ends do justify the means. But okay, so if we're talking about criminals and the most foul of the criminals... What house would they all probably fall into? I mean, would they Gryffindor. all be Slytherin? <laughs> 100% Gryffindor. Okay. People are going to people are going to write in and you're going to have to justify that that claim. <laughs> There's probably somebody with a thesis dissertation about this, <laughs> but that's a question I've never considered. I mean, logically right off the bat you'd be like Slytherin, of course. They live in a dungeon under the sea. Like <laughs> <laughs> They're not good folks. But, I don't know, can a psychopath trick the sorting hat? Hmm. Okay, so if you're out there listening and you've written a thesis on this, or a dissertation, even better, let us know about it. Also, we don't support TERFs. Uh, just throwing that out there, we've had a lot of Harry Potter conversation. 100%, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so, what else? Well, let's talk about ourselves a little bit. The listeners don't know us, so... That's a good idea. So when we have some other things in common, and then some very different things. <laughs> um, I don't think it's risky to say we we both met in California, but neither of us are from California. Yeah, we're both bumpkins. We won't necessarily say right now where we're from, because we don't want to get, you know, we don't want to rile up anyone. But we both are from the sticks. Yeah, I grew up in the Deep South. A question I get immediately is, where's your accent? And uh, really, if I get drunk or angry, it will happen. (laughs) Uh, But I've lived on the West Coast now enough that it has sort of faded back behind. Yeah, well, I'm from an area that's kind of disputed in terms of what region it belongs to. When I was growing up there, it was firmly considered Midwest. Now, 
you know, eons later, it's somewhat considered to be South, but still others consider it Midwest. So probably a lot of people now can guess what I'm talking about. Um, it's not a place that people really associate with having an accent, but when I was in high school and I moved from that place to the area where I live now, which is New England, oh my gosh, I got shit over my accent. And people would say, are you from Texas? Oh, where are you from? Your accent. And so that's why I don't have much of an accent because I worked really hard to sound, had like California broadcaster accent. Yeah. In a way, I actually regret losing my accent and sometimes I think about like I mean if I talk to my family on the phone it comes back immediately but there's a piece of me that's like oh that would have been interesting Mm -hmm. Uh, people would have thought I was interesting if I had my southern accent still but I tried to get rid of it too because I don't know I'm another dissertation topic there's like a sense of shame Mm -hmm. especially when you leave that area Um, but I do regret it a little bit now sometimes I wish I could just turn it back on People judge you, right? I mean, I felt judged. People think that you're not smart or, you know, all the stereotypes that people have about people who are from the South or the Midwest. Um, But the fun thing now is I I was certainly made fun of for saying y'all, which is an excellent gender neutral prone or descriptor. And people use it all the time. But growing up, I was like, I think my mom even taught me, like, don't say y'all if you're doing something professional. Yeah, it's come full circle. So take that, y'all. (laughs) Y'all. Or folks. I mean, we can talk about that, too. I like folks because y'all, I mean, I use y'all, but I feel like, you know, not coming from the Deep South, it feels like posturing a little bit for me. But folks feels really natural (laughs) from where I'm from. So, hey, folks. Good afternoon. This is Most Foul Podcast. Hey, y'all, you're listening to Most Foul Podcast. <laughs> See, the big one that I got was don't say seen, as in I seen something, and don't say ain't. Those are the two big, like, set yourself apart as, like, a town person or as a country person where I come from. Oh, yeah, ain't was, like, my mom was in my head, do not say that. You are educated. But, again, it's sort of that sense of shame. Mm-hmm. Uh of your own regionality, which is wild in and of itself. Right. So I write songs and poetry, too. And ain't sometimes fits, like, perfectly there in a way that I would never say it in conversation. (laughs) Well, and sometimes just for emphasis. I don't know. There are a lot of times when you might want it. But, yeah, so we grew up in other places. We made our way to California. Now we're on separate coast, very unfortunately. Very. But... The power of technology allows us to do this uh, recording, so I'm excited. Zoom is like, okay, we can just have an afternoon together, and I just carry my carry my laptop around the house, and you're with me. It's awesome. Yeah, I've been doing the same, too, with, like, friends from college, because I went to college on the East Coast, and oh, is it weird to say Florida is the East Coast? I was going to say, <laughs> but I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> I mean, technically. Technically. If there's an east and a west, I was on the east. (laughs) I feel like Florida, you just say Florida. Florida is a thing unto itself. Yeah, so I went to college in Florida. And, um, I mean, I still connect with some of my friends. But in the pandemic, we've connected in ways we haven't in years. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, 
As an introvert, it's been a huge boon because I can do virtual parties in my pajamas. Like, actually, I've done some party virtual parties in bed, which is amazing. I mean, obviously, that's for your close circle of friends. But, <laughs> I mean, there's really nothing better to me than a party wearing pajamas in bed. And when you're ready to be done, you close the lid and you're going to sleep. That's it. Yeah, you brought up something... So listeners, maybe this will be hard to believe. Maybe you'll be like, yeah, I get it. Uh, I think we both identify as introverts uh, in our social lives. (laughs) Although I feel like you're less of one than I am. I wouldn't jump all the way to ambivert, but I have been like forcing myself to be social in a way that I hope is changing me a little bit. (laughs) But I feel like we need to do a disclaimer here. Not that there's anything wrong with being an introvert. We both love being introverts, and it's hard to be an introvert in our society. So we we talk about ways of making that easier. Yeah, I I agree. I love being an introvert. I, I love myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like a weird journey as a queer person sometimes of, like, how I felt growing up to now. Like, of course... Nobody, well, I guess narcissists love 100% of things about themselves. (laughs) But no, I wouldn't change it. I like being an introvert. But like you said, society makes it hard. Plus, you know, with work, I have to give presentations and things. And Mm -hmm. so want to be better at that um, and push out of that comfort zone a little bit. But I like being an introvert. I like my podcast. I like reading. I like being alone unless I choose to not be alone. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember one time I was in therapy. I was talking to my therapist. I'm still in therapy, but I was talking to a different therapist. This was like a ways back. And I don't know. I was feeling at the time like my social life wasn't what I had hoped it would be. And so she's helping me, you know, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? And I was like, well, I like reading. I like blogging. I like writing. I like crossword puzzles. Like, And she's like, just give me one thing that involves another human being. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, how about a reading group? I'm like, uh, I don't know. It's a big commitment. Well, and I'm trying to own this label for myself. I like to think of myself as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And that's how I view like my work life, but also my like personal passions. And so there are lots of avenues for storytelling that are great for introverts. And I would say podcast included. Yeah. So with the podcast, I guess... I don't know how we really started the conversations about true crime. I mean, maybe it was like it started with zombie apocalypse emergency preparedness conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we were lucky. We landed into an office that was weird like us, and we could have conversations about zombie apocalypse at lunch, and it was just everyone was into it. That is lucky. Uh, we won't give the listeners everything, but just know, I would say our team invested at least 20 hours into a scenario in which we <laughs> inhabit the great garbage patch of the Pacific. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. All right. But, you know, you talked a little bit about um, your personal life. So going back to kind of like who we are, you dropped the queer bomb. And I can drop the middle-aged white soccer mom bomb. (laughs) I know it's so exciting, my fantastic life. Although I'm not technically a soccer mom, but, you know, like... You're not a soccer mom yet. Exactly, yeah, the proverbial soccer mom. (laughs) (laughs) 
What else? Well, I would say you're selling yourself way too short. Well, I like to set the bar low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, my bio pretty much everywhere is I'm here, I'm queer, I'm full of fear. And if there are non-murderer uh, queer men in Northern California that are fans of this podcast, uh, let's have coffee slash tea because I don't actually drink coffee. <laughs> yes. That, I think that should be kind of a secondary goal of the podcast is to get you settled down. Yeah, I don't know about settled down, <laughs> but <laughs> in a relationship, I, I, we, the dating apps can be bonus content or whatever. We don't have to get into that, but uh, it's a mess. It's a mess out there. So, yeah, if the podcast is the start of a meet cute, I'm fine with that. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. I would love that. Well, and then that. we can sell it, option the rights for a movie, become oh millionaires. Yes, who would play you? <laughs> oh, wow. This seems like a very obvious question, but I don't know that I've ever thought about it. The Skarsgård, but he's getting old. Well, I would say Scarlett Johansson, since she can be anyone or anything. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> <laughs> but she apologized, Andrew. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'll take a scars guard. He's getting I mean, a I'm little assuming... long in the tooth to play you at this point. I don't know. Yeah, I was like, he's older. My luck, it'll be like some horrific TikTok <laughs> star. <laughs> no, we won't let that happen. So moving over to podcast, I was thinking about the podcast that got me hooked because right now and this might be an outlier I feel honestly feel like I listen to more podcasts than I watch tv at this point Mm. um and so I was thinking back like what was the one that I was like whoa I am obsessed and for me I don't know if you listened to it but it was s-town I haven't listened to that one Oh my god, it's so good. And it's like a mini-series, so it's a finite number of episodes, but it's like, it stands for Shit Town, Shit Town, Alabama. Oh. And it, it's like fascinating on its own, highly recommend, but listening to it, and this is going to say more about me than anything if the listeners have listened to it, but I was like, I know these people. Like, obviously <laughs> not, I don't know those people, but I was like, no, I know these people from oh. growing up. Like, because they sound almost fantastical to other folks I know who have listened to it. And I was like, no, I know some of these people are in my family. We <laughs> I talked know about these this. People. <laughs> we talked about this. Do you remember? Because we were talking about um, uh, Tiger King. Oh, yeah, maybe, because I know those people, And I was telling you, I know, I was telling you how my husband thought it was such an exotic, like, wild, crazy thing, and then I went and watched part of the first episode. I'm like, I don't need to watch this. I live this. This is how I grew up. I 100% know these people. (laughs) Yes, we talked about this. Oh, okay, well, I'm adding that one to my list. But it hooked me. Was there a, a podcast, not even necessarily true crime, but... One of them that was your like, oh, yeah, I like podcasts now. Well, so I am much older than you. We haven't gone into like the specifics of our demographics, but we fall into different generations, even though at heart, I like to think that I'm kind of part of yours. But so (laughs) I discovered podcasts way back in the day. 
in the early to mid 2000s. And I was listening, I was really into the getting things done movement, which is like a productivity hack. It was, it was, that time was like the time of, of mind hacks and like how to do stuff better. And like a bunch of white person shit basically is how I think it would be described now. And so I started listening to, well, I discovered his blog, but Merlin Mann. So he had a blog that was on, it was called 43 folders and it was how to like GTD the shit out of your life. And so I started like following that. And then he started a podcast that was based on it and then, you know, followed him on Twitter. And to be honest, I had quite a bit of a crush on Merlin, man. I mean, I'll just, I'll just be truthful here. And so I listened to that. And then the 2000s were not a good decade for me. So I also listened to a lot of Zen meditation and like how to not lose your shit through Eastern philosophies kind of podcasts. But then in 2.0 podcast, which is in the present day, you know, you turned me on to my favorite murder and I don't know if it was the wildfires or what, but I just wasn't in a headspace that I could really take it in for what it was. I was just kind of like, you know, they're flipping and this is crime and like that, you know. But then I started listening more recently to Crime Junkie, which I mean, I'm not like giving away a big secret podcast here to talk about Crime Junkie. But I got really into it. And then I was like, I should go back and listen to My Favorite Murder. And now it's like, I don't even care what they're talking about. I just want to hear them talking in the background of my life. I just want their voices as as like the soundtrack of my day. So that's kind of like what prompted Crime Junkie and My Favorite Murder. Those were the things that, that got me to the point of like, hey, Andrew, we could do this. And it's like, yeah, that's how I feel in podcast. I'm listening to my friends. <laughs> Yes. Just me and my friends hanging out. <laughs> Since we can just throw up any images with our posts, can can I just put a picture of Merlin Mann so everyone can see kind of what a cutie he is? Or at least he was. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he's not hot anymore, but he was hot back then. I would love to see that photo. So, okay. yes. I'll find it. I mean, you know, in a brainy kind of way. Not We're not talking like shirtless pics, although I'm sure he has them. But, you know. I mean, either or. Whatever. We're, whatever we're not on that level. Right. <laughs> But, I mean, I think that does sort of sum up. I mean, our thought is, like, we love podcasts, too. And that's why we created Most Foul, to really look at this intersection, kind of these two intersections, I think, that describe us in a lot of ways with true crime and pop culture and what's going on in the world. And so, as we were coming up with the idea, and Kirsten, you can obviously jump into this, too, but we were getting more and more and more excited as we figured out, like, well, what makes our perspective special? What makes our show unique? And I am like, the research was so fun, which I don't know if other people <laughs> feel that way, but I'm so excited to talk about today's story. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, are you ready to just dive in? Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go first. We're not going to pretend like it wasn't prearranged that I'm going to go first. We can just say, we always knew Kirsten would go first. I'm going to jump in. And today I'm going to tell you about... It's a murder. You know, we're just going to start with, with the heavy with the heavy thing. It's a murder of a young woman. Her name is Maria Martin. She was a small town girl. And I, I have trouble saying that without hearing Journey in the back of my mind. So I'm just like, as a tick, I'm just saying that so I don't start giggling later. But if, I, if my tone sounds jovial, 
while talking about murder. That's why. But she was a small town girl. I mean, there's no way to say it otherwise. She grew up in a little tiny English village, which was about 75 miles outside of London. And they have what is called areas of designated, no, area of natural beauty. That's what they call them. And so it's kind of like a national park or a state park, but just a really beautiful part of England. I have never personally been there, but just a beautiful small town life. She was a quiet kid, but really smart. And from what people say, she was a hottie. She was popular. She got a lot of attention with the boys uh, in her village. The thing, though, this sounds kind of idyllic. I mean, at least for me, I I kind of idealized small-town life. Uh, But her childhood was actually pretty tough. Her mom, Grace, died when she was only nine. And she was the oldest girl, so she kind of was forced into the role of mom for her younger brothers and sisters. And so when she was 17, she got pregnant with a local boy in her town. But the child died really shortly after childbirth. And then the couple split up a couple of years later. So, I mean, she's still late teens. She had a son with another boy in town. And this this guy's name was Peter Matthews. The relationship didn't last, but Peter at least contributed financially. And so, you know, Maria's just living her life. And, you know, I think trying to figure out what her future will be, as people do when they're in their late teens and early 20s. So when she was about 25, she hooked up with a guy named William Corder. And I think, you know, after a lot of heartbreak, she kind of thought this would be the one. And she really had set her intentions on, you know, this this might be marriage material. Unfortunately, William was a total fuckboy, which was kind of known in the town. But for whatever reason, Maria just really took shine to him. But he was he was shagging around town with pretty much anybody and he was only 22 at the time, but he already had a few run-ins with the law. He was involved with some, some thefts and some check forging, but his dad was a big deal in the town. And so he was able to use his connections to really kind of sweep that under the rug. A year after they met and they are kind of dating casually, Maria had a baby, another baby with him. And unfortunately, after about a month, this child also died. So just a ton of tragedy for her. But this couple, they stayed together even after the death of their child, and they were planning to elope. But some people say that even at that time, or even as she was pregnant, William was really still up to his old fuckboy ways. He kind of wanted to keep his relationship with Maria secret, and he kept pushing the engagement or the wedding date back. So eventually Maria and William decide on a day that they're going to elope. And I don't really know exactly why an elopement, but they decided to elope. And they planned to meet at a local haunt and then travel together to nearby Ipswich, which is a bigger city in England. They talked about the plan uh, earlier that week with Maria's stepmother, whose name was Anne. But when Anne hadn't heard from Maria over the next few days after they were supposed to leave and, and elope, she was concerned, obviously. Where Maria's father was in all of this, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of crazy because he doesn't come up much in the coverage of this. But Anne really became alarmed when William returned to town without Maria. So he just kind of comes back into town acting like nothing had happened, but Maria's not with him. So he had a bunch of bullshit explanations about where she was and why she hadn't been in contact. But before long, her family contacted the police. And when that happened, William just vanished. He disappeared from town. So weeks and months pass with no sightings of Maria and no contact from her at all. So at the end of that year, Maria's stepmother, 
claimed to have been visited by Maria in a dream. So, kind of far out, but she tells police that Maria told her in the dream that she had been murdered and where exactly she was buried. So, you know, the police were kind of like, hmm, really? Skeptical. But Anne was so persistent. Like, she said she was having recurring dreams and she knew exactly where it was. So Maria's father now finally seems concerned. He goes to the spot and he actually starts digging in the spot himself. I mean, it's hard to imagine the horror of this, but he actually finds Maria's corpse. She's badly decomposed. I mean, it's been a very long amount of time since she had gone missing. And she's in a sack in a shallow grave at the place where they were set to meet when they were going to elope. And she has William's scarf around her neck. So obviously things are not looking good for William. This is, you know, he's obviously a suspect. And they track him down and he's in London. So they track him down pretty quickly. And he's shacked up with a new woman. So, you know, fishy. His story just really changed so much over time. So when they first came to see him in London, he denied even knowing Maria. But as soon as he realized that they had her body, he changed his story. You know, he goes into, like, planning mode. And they take him back to the village um, to face charges. And he claims that it was all a big mistake. He says that he accidentally shot her in the eye while they were arguing. Well, on the police side, her body was so decomposed, they couldn't even tell for sure how she died. It looked like maybe she had been strangled, but she did have an injury to her eye that they thought maybe came from a dagger, but could have been from a gun. So, yeah, she was in bad shape. But here's where it gets hella fouled up, okay? There were rumors that Maria and or William had actually murdered their baby who had died one month after childbirth. And the rumors went on to say that they were fighting that day that they were set to elope about the the baby and where it had been buried and that if people discovered the body, they would be found out as murderers. Even more fouled up is that Maria's stepmother, Anne, she was only a year older than Maria. And according to people in the town, Anne had been getting it on with William. So there were rumors that they had planned Maria's murder together. And it was only when William shacked up with the new lady in London that Anne decided she was going to arrange for Maria's body to be found and implicate William. So sus as fuck. I mean, just all around. I don't think any of that came up at the trial because ultimately, as the trial got closer... William confessed, and he took complete responsibility uh, for the crime. He was sentenced to death, and he was hanged three days later. Wait, he was hanged? Oh, yeah. Did I forget to mention that this was in 1828? They still hung people then. Hanged? Hung? It was a thing. They hanged people. So the case was a complete media circus. The newspapers were covering every tawdry detail, And they had something called broadsheets, which I don't fully understand the difference between a broadsheet and a newspaper, but I think a broadsheet was kind of like, kind of like a tabloid, but a broadsheet would be entirely about one thing. So it was kind of like a mini tabloid that was all about this case. It became known as the Red Barn Murder. That is where her body was found. That's where they had arranged to meet before they eloped. And after the trial and execution, 
the story was retold hundreds of times. I mean, honestly, it sounds like thousands, but like even just in the immediate aftermath, it was retold hundreds of times. Uh, there were songs and Penny Dreadfuls, which are cheap little printed serials, kind of like tabloids. Um, penny gaffs, they're called. Cheap plays that were performed in pubs. Legit plays, operas, etchings, drawings. I mean, everything you can imagine. It was just, it was everything. This was 100% like the OJ trial of its time. The public interest was so bananas. The little village, which is called Polsted, and I looked up that pronunciation. <laughs> Polsted got 200,000 visitors in the first year alone. Now, this is before cars, so you can imagine it wasn't just everyone hopped into a car and drove 30 minutes to get to Polsted. This was like, you know, you were dedicated if you were going to little Polsted outside of Ipswich in 1828. People try to say, oh, this new true crime fascination. Exactly. Nah, people got on their horses, they walked, like... This was a thing. It's always been a thing. It was so much a thing. I mean, sightseers who came to the town, they chipped poor Maria's gravestone entirely away. So they chipped off little pieces to take home as souvenirs to the point where there was no gravestone left. So right now, if you were to visit that graveyard, there's just a plaque that's attached to the church that is near the location where she was buried. But her gravestone is completely gone. Sightseers even dismantled the barn where she was buried. So they took, I mean, everything. They they jimmied planks off, and then they split them into toothpicks, souvenir toothpicks, <laughs> which was a thing also, I guess. Even my boy Charles Dickens, which, you know, I can talk on and on about how much I love Charles Dickens, wrote about the case in his weekly literary journal, which was called All the Year Round. I mean, it was definitely the trial of the century, the crime of the century. Even William Corder's body wasn't off limits. So I didn't even say this. When he was when he was tried and sentenced, part of his sentence was to be dissected. So that was That's a thing. A thing. <laughs> that was a thing. So he was hung and then he was taken down, I guess once they were sure he was dead. They laid him out in front of the crowd, in front of the crowd. And he was, he was, I'm trying to think of the right exact word. So he was, well, yes, he was split open and they peeled his skin back. I mean, I know this is really gruesome, but they peeled his skin back and they just left him there for people to to look. So 5,000 people queued up to see him flayed open. And then the following day, they took him to the University of Cambridge, and they did an autopsy, I guess, and a dissection in front of a room full of people as, a, I guess, a learning experience. And they did some bizarre experiments like electroconductivity and weird things. Then, and this is definitely the grossest thing of all, and we'll include some pictures on Instagram and in, in the episode notes, a surgeon tanned his skin. So they skinned him, the surgeon tanned the skin, and then they used the skin to bind a book about his crime. And his skeleton was strung together and used as a teaching aid for decades. So it was only finally cremated in 2004. I know, right? <laughs> the oh my people God. can't see, but the look on your face. <laughs> I'm like speechless and i'll say like we purposefully haven't looked too much at each other's research so it can be like 
storytelling to us too. And this is horrific. Yeah. 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 So when people say, oh, this fascination with true crime is a new thing, I just want to say, if anything, we've gotten less fanatical about it because this is hardcore. Yeah. And that kind of is the point of our podcast is looking at this intersection. And, you know, of course, there's I mean, there's podcasts about it. There's still fascination. But you're so right. Like people's morbidity and what they were willing to accept, especially back in those times, is astounding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you were going to be a serial killer or a gruesome murderer in this time, you really did not want to get caught because public hanging, and then dissection in front of everyone. I mean, it's disturbing. At the same time, right after, before the dissection, I don't know the exact timeline. I did do quite a bit of digging to to try to find as much detail out about this point as I could, and I just couldn't find it. But at some point, a cast was taken of his lifeless face. And again, this was a thing that was done then, and you're going to talk a little more about that. But There was a cast taken of his face, and I think there are four busts in existent plaster casts or plaster models of his his death mask. And again, we're going to share it on Instagram and and on the blog, but it's it's creepy. You know, you can tell when you're looking at it that it's, it's made of a dead person. Like, it's wild. It's wild what they did. So yeah, that kind of jumps over to my side of the research. So listeners, this probably makes more sense for the title of the episode now, but the crimes we're talking about and sort of the history and the impact is focusing on Madame Tussaud. And we think of them now like, well, some people might really like it. I was going to say Taurus Trap, which is super judgy, hugely popular. I'll talk about how popular. I mean, so many people visit. Well, I mean, we've both been, right? Yeah. We don't do things and we've been. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, it's going to be like a look into how sort of this company with, you know, celebrities and wax sculptures, like really cemented its place in pop culture and the cultural conversation and understanding. So the Tussauds brand and name really starts back in the 1700s in Germany. And before we get to Marie who is Madame Tussauds, Um, just a tiny bit of backstory because it'll come around again as we go a little further. It actually starts with Philippe Curtius, who was a physician um, who started creating organs and biological structures from wax. He eventually recreated notable people. So like sizing up from his like science and medical work with the organs, he started uh, making wax figures of people and he displayed them to the public in Bern, Switzerland. And so that's sort of where they caught the attention of the French royal family, who invited him to display his exhibits in Paris. So he accepted, and as part of that, had to move to Paris, and he brought with him his housekeeper and her daughter. And that daughter was Marie Groholtz, and she is better known as Madame Tussaud. So Marie became his apprentice. She, in her own right, became renowned for her wax modeling and portraiture, Um, especially for her work. She recreated Voltaire, Benjamin Franklin, notable people of the time. So according to her memoirs, she said that she was employed to teach um, in Versailles. So she was teaching votive making to the sister of Louis XVI. So in her memoirs, she talks about being privy to private conversations with the princess and her brother and members of court. And then 
just a quick tangent, <laughs> uh, Wikipedia was shady as hell. <laughs> And they made sure to point out that there is no contemporary evidence to confirm her account. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that sounds to me like there's no evidence to confirm that it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted, I put that in my notes because I was like, yeah, but there, her memoir says so. And you don't have evidence to say she didn't. So I felt like that was a pretty weird way. Um, of going into Wikipedia's mansplaining again. That's, yeah, that's how it seemed like. <laughs> but it, her story actually does make sense of having her connection to the royals. So leading up to the French Revolution in 1789, wax heads of Jacques Necker. Um, so just for the listeners, uh, there's a lot of French names and I'm going to do my best. <laughs> He was a Genevan banker and finance minister for the king. So there was a wax head of him and then also the Duke of Orleans that were both created by Curtius. So the man who taught uh, Marie how to do the wax figures. He made these wax sculptures of these heads and they were actually carried in protest two days before the attack on the Bastille. Mm, That's what's known as foreboding. (laughs) Yes. But even still, Marie was seen as a royal sympathizer. So again, maybe Wikipedia, she was telling the truth. Um, And so much so that she was arrested in the Reign of Terror. They shaved her head in preparation for execution by guillotine. And she was freed in the nick of time. A man named Jean-Marie Coulot d'Herbois. He was a French revolutionary and member of the Committee of Public Safety during the Reign of Terror. He was a supporter of Curtius, and so he stepped in to save Marie because he knew that she wasn't really a royal sympathizer, and he had those ties to Curtius. But just as an interesting side note, with the theme of macabre and morbidity, Dierbois, he saved Marie, but he administered the execution of more than 2,000 people <sighs> in the city of Lyon. Wow. Back to Marie. So after she was freed, she was employed to make death masks and whole body cast of the revolution's famous victims. So the king, Marie Antoinette, the princess de Lamballe, Marat, even Robespierre once he was eventually beheaded. And so when Curtius died in 1794, he left the entire collection of waxworks to Marie. The next year, she married uh, Francois Tussaud, a civil engineer, and they had three children. Their daughter uh, didn't make it past childbirth, but... She had two living sons. Again, tying into the theme of the show, over in England, they were fascinated by the French Revolution. They wanted to know everything. They wanted to see everything. So in 1802, she went to London to present her collections of portraits, which, like, don't think paintings. Like, think wax figures. It's just sort of the same terminology. Right. And so she brought her four-year-old son, Joseph, with her. But because of the Napoleonic Wars... She could not go back to France. So she had to stay in England. She traveled around the British Isles, sort of like a traveling exhibition of her wax figures. And the people were so fascinated with the bloody history of the French Revolution that she did that for 33 years. She traveled around the British Isles. But in 1822, she was reunited with her other son, Francois. He was able to come to England and he joined the family business. I mean, it sounds like a bummer. Who knows? Their real relationship, we don't know. But um, she never saw her husband again. He never left France. Uh. 
So, yeah, so after 33 years, she eventually set up her first permanent exhibit in Baker Street in 1835. In 42, she made a self-portrait of herself out of wax, which is one of the only ways we really know what she looks like because she never posed for a photo. And then after she passed away in her sleep, Francois became the chief artist for the exhibition. And he was eventually succeeded by his son, who was succeeded by his son. We're going to jump ahead quite a bit to sort of the modern-day Madame Tussauds. Okay. So in 1926, it became like a limited company. And then in the 60s, it opened its first international exhibit in Amsterdam. I'm going to skip a bunch because my head was spinning with acquisitions (laughs) and expansions and some really boring information about uh, corporations. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, listener, the important thing is that the company grew a lot all the way up to 1997. Um, They reintroduced traveling exhibits, and so they went to Melbourne and Sydney, Australia, Singapore, and then eventually to Hong Kong in the year 2000. The company liked Hong Kong so much that they decided to make a permanent exhibit there. They expanded all through the European continent. They expanded to the United States. The Madame Tussauds Wax Museum is one of the major tourist attractions in London. So In London, they get 2.5 million visitors a year. And since that has opened, they've had over 500 million visitors at that location. And then globally, the company gets 550 million visitors across their network every year. Wow. So this is not an exhaustive list. (laughs) Amsterdam, Istanbul, Beijing, Bangkok, Berlin, Blackpool, Sydney, Hong Kong, Las Vegas, San Francisco, San Antonio, Shanghai, Washington, D.C., New York City, Orlando, Hollywood, Singapore, Tokyo, Vienna, New Delhi, Prague, and most importantly, St. Augustine, Florida, which is the one that I visited. (laughs) I was going to ask. Kind of in like contemporary, they still have their rooms of horrors and sort of the macabre elements that were really led the fascination in the beginning, but it's like Ariana Grande, Zendaya, (laughs) Tom Cruise, Kim Kardashian. So it's like really focusing on the celebrity culture these days. Like, I think it would be shocking to today's public if they were like, oh, let's get Casey Anthony (laughs) in here, kind of in the ways of old. Like, they still do serial killers. It's just not bloody in the ways that it used to be. Yeah. But they really cemented themselves into our culture. And so it's not just the museums. So in literature, there's some really interesting connections, too. There's a brief reference to Madame Tussauds in the Shakespeare, or sorry, in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Mazarine Stone. In Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days, the author says that the only thing the wax figure sculpted by Madame Tussauds lack is speech. Wow. The museum is featured in Elizabeth Bowen's 1938 novel, The Death of the Heart. Marie makes an appearance in the 2016 novel, Edgar Allan Poe and the London Monster, which I never heard of. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll check that out. Yeah, that sounds good. In music, Gilbert and Sullivan's song, My Object All Sublime, is featured in in the 1885 opera, The Mikado. And in the title character singing of Punishments Fitting the Crime and the lyrics, oh, we'll see if I can read these correctly. <laughs> the amateur tenor whose vocal villainies all desire to shirk shall, during off hours exhibit his powers to Madame Tussauds waxwork. Mm. And so, you know, in case the off chance that our listeners aren't super into operas, 
Um, the Mikado became the most frequently performed Savoy opera, and it's one of the most frequently played musical theater pieces in history. Wow. So a feature on Chicago Lyric Opera's 2010 production noted that um, the show has been in constant production for the last 125 years. Madame Tussauds is the focus of Steve Taylor's song Meltdown, which describes someone turning up the thermostat and causing the lax figures to melt. <laughs> the Beatles use their own wax figures alongside cardboard cutouts um, of various famous peoples for the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So the album cover features their Madame Tussauds wax figures. I had no idea. Me neither. And my dad owned that record. It creeped me out as a child. <laughs> now you know why. <laughs> Just another... I was like, why do they look like that? Uh. But it was Madame Tussauds wax figure. So another interesting one. So I'm not a big gamer, but my brother is. And in games, Marie is featured in 2014's Assassin's Creed Unity. As a side quest, uh, the player's tasked with retrieving several heads for which uh, Madame Tussauds needs to commission to make replicas. Uh. Um, and in 2014, that game sold 10 million copies. And it was released last year for as a downloadable game, and it was one of the best-selling games in the world when it wow. was released last year again. That's wild. So, so even more, jumping over to movies, the museums itself are featured in a ton of movies, um, but there are a few horror movies that were inspired sort of by the macabre history of Madame Tussauds that I wanted to talk about a little more in depth. So the first was 1933's Mystery at the Wax Museum, and that starred Fay Ray of King Kong fame mm. at the time. I know there's been a million remakes of that, too. She's the OG. But this movie isn't streaming, so I was only able to watch some clips on YouTube. But just some interesting trivia. It was Warner Brothers' last film made using two-color Technicolor. And it creates kind of an unreal atmosphere because the colors are unnatural. Um, but it fit with the movie. So the interesting part is... Unfortunately, Technicolor requires super strong lights, and so it melted the wax figures during filming. So <sighs> in that movie, half of the wax figures are played by living actors. Ironic. Because they <laughs> melted, yes, and it fits to the, <laughs> the plot of the film. But even though the film received kind of mixed reviews at the time, it was Warner Brothers' fifth highest grossing of the year. Again, the reason we're going into this is like... People are interested. Yeah. These, like, crimes of the past have, like, totally shaped so much pop culture, movies, references. So even just following this one chain of movies, um, in 1953, there was a remake called House of Wax starring Vincent Price. Um, and I did watch this one. I would say it was pretty good. It holds up. Um, Vincent Price's horror makeup was legitimately shocking. And it, of course, it had me like lamenting about how horror movies are destroyed now by uh, <laughs> CGI instead yeah. of practical effects. Yeah, yeah. But so for this one, House of Wax was the first color 3D movie from an American uh, major studio. And incidentally, it premiered two days after the first ever black and white 3D movie. So it was cutting edge at the time. This movie was a huge success. It topped the movie charts for five weeks. So it was huge. So much so that in 2014, the Library of Congress deemed the movie was culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. And also, I mean, can we just say, like, Vincent Price, 42-year-old Vincent Price, like, I 
I I would do it. I would I would hit that. Right? I was more of an Igor man myself. <laughs> um, so now can I can I reveal the the secret of who played Igor? A little behind the scenes, Kirsten and I had a small chat about this. We had sort of the same thing where I was like, Igor, those arms, yes. And um She's like, do you know who it was? I said no, and I promised not to Google. So this is a live reveal to me. A live reveal. So, drum roll, Igor was played by Charles Bronson. What? Yes. Right? His face. What did they do? I don't know. I don't know. Right? I couldn't believe it when I looked it up. I mean, the arms, yes, but also the shock, because, yeah, I mean, even as ancient as I am, I still only ever knew Charles Bronson as an old guy, you know? Yeah, that's legitimately surprising. Their (laughs) makeup people, they were on point. Yes. And you hit something that I didn't include in my notes, but this film, like, really revamped uh, Vincent Price's career. He was in a bit of a slump at the time, and this catapulted him up and got so many more movies because of it. I mean, tall drink of water. That's all I'm going to say. The movie was well-reviewed, and obviously it made a ton of money. Even now, I'm not exactly sure how they calculate reviews of a movie this old for Rotten Tomatoes, but it has 95%. Um, But there was a truly mean review that I wanted to read you because I thought it was so funny. (laughs) So at the time, it was from The New Yorker. And they wrote that the movie, and this is where the quote begins, set the movies back about 49 years. It could have set them back further if there had been anything earlier than that to set them back to. Oh. (laughs) Bam. So haters gonna hate. Yeah. Uh, But when I was looking at the reviews, I was like, this is so funny and shady. Oh my god. Um, But speaking of bad reviews, there was a remake in 2005. (laughs) called uh, House of Wax, and I I need the listeners to know that I watched this movie for you. (laughs) (laughs) And it was wild. It stars Alicia Cuthbert, Chad Michael Murray, Brian Van Holt, Paris Hilton, and Jared Padalecki. And honestly, Paris was my favorite actor in the movie. I'm sorry to the other actors. I know that she (laughs) is... She's a DJ now. Um, I don't have bad things to say about Paris. Uh, and in fact, in the movie, I thought she was my favorite part. But the movie has 26% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> that being said. <laughs> Roger Ebert gave it two out of four stars and said, and this is another quote, House of Wax is not a good movie, but it's an efficient one. And it will deliver most of what anyone attending House of Wax could reasonably expect, assuming it would be unreasonable to expect very much. <laughs> So reviewers in their sick burns. Yeah, that's perfect. And sort of with the Paris of it all, she, in my opinion, unfairly won a Golden Raspberry Award for her performance, but she also won a Teen Choice Award for the same role. So the people liked it. And I'm one of those people. I thought she was (laughs) great. If you're going to watch it, you should watch it solely for her death scene. When I say I gasped, it shocking. It was not anything I expected. But the movie's not that great. It's okay. (laughs) It's just one of those things where they set up, uh, whoever wrote the script, it was like, oh yeah, every character you're gonna hate because they're very unlikable. Now root for them to live. And I was like, oh, they can die. (laughs) (laughs) But 
uh, other than one scene where the wax figures were melting, it was a totally different movie. But still, it all goes back to Marie and Madame Tussauds and this creation is still turning out movies. And all that said, it was still successful. It made 70 million off of a budget of 40 million. And then it made another 42 million on VHS and DVD sales. So it performed well. And that means a lot of people like it and a lot of people know about it. So that's why it's part of the culture. Yeah. So all in all, uh, Marie Groholtz took this really bloody beginning of death masks and serial killers and spawned an empire that cemented her in popular culture for centuries and honestly with no sign of slowing down. Yeah, that's amazing. It's incredible. People are fascinated by it, you know? I mean, I'm fascinated by just death masks and how that was a thing, like public execution and dissections. That was a thing. I mean, yeah. This is the first time I've ever heard of a public dissection. Same. And so as I was researching this, I'd never heard of that. I mean, I suppose in the sense that maybe it comes from being drawn and quartered. I mean, I'm using this with air quotes, like the more civilized ancestor of, or the more civilized descendant of being drawn and quartered somehow. But I mean, it feels very much the same as it's on the like dying on the rack spectrum of horror. Yeah. I guess at least you're dead already. Yeah. Silver linings. (laughs) (laughs) So that actually brings me into some other information that I found in my research. And this is this is going to be a bonus episode. I mean, we got so much information that we just have more to say. So if you want to hear the bonus content, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash mostfowlpod. You know, we're doing this for free. We love it. But it's also, we have full-time jobs. Kirsten has kids. I have nonsense to do. (laughs) So if you want some bonus content, we're going to update that pretty frequently. And like she said, there's so much information. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours just about Madame Tussauds and these killers. But some really interesting content and the bonus episode about some of the other folks she did death masks for. Well, I think that's it for episode one. Thank you all so much for listening to it. I love putting it together. Oh my gosh, this has been so much fun. I can't wait to do the next episode. Me too. Um, And listener, please join us for the next episode. Absolutely. And if you have feedback or we said something dumb or incorrect, let us know about it. Mostfowlpod at gmail.com. But if you're going to correct our pronunciations... Please be kind. Yes. (laughs) Truly, truly tried. And we can always learn and we can be better, but we tried real hard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and we appreciate the hell out of you. Yes, we appreciate the hell out of you. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini-episode, visit our website at mostfowlpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. <laughs>